When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Igor Stravinsky once remarked, music is the sound wave of the soul. Like spirituality, music is ineffable, with the power to inspire and soothe, to animate and comfort, to unite and uplift. The writer Kurt Vonnegut said, with his characteristic wry irreverence, quote, if I should ever die, God forbid, let this be my epitaph. The only proof he needed for the existence of God was music. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. Please subscribe to our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm pleased to welcome Asaf Shelig to the show today to talk about his recent book, Theological Stains, Art, Music, and the Zionist Project. Asaf Shelig is a senior lecturer of musicology at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, who specializes in 20th century Jewish and Israeli art music. His earlier book, Jewish Contiguities and the Soundtrack of Israeli History, was published by Oxford University Press in 2014. Asaf Sheleg, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Renee. Thank you for having me. And thank you for reading Theological Stains. <laughs> uh, I, I like to begin the interviews by asking about someone or something that had a powerful impact on your own intellectual development. Good question. Um, one of my piano teachers, before I started uh, going to music academies, and trained myself as a concert pianist in addition to uh, an aspiring musicologist, uh, was a pianist who encouraged me to read beyond the notes. His name is Zecharia Plavin. He's an Israeli pianist of Latvian birth. And if he would play a sonata by Beethoven, he would send me to read Shakespeare. If he would play Liszt, he would send me to read Victor Hugo uh, or Nietzsche. Uh, or Lamartin, and so forth. So gradually I learned that there are so many concentric circles without which music means nothing. And that was the, uh, that was when, that was the moment when the seed was planted to think about musicological lenses. What are theological stains? <clears throat> Let's start by unpacking your title. Okay. Um, 
it seems seems provocative, and provocative is always good for intellectual circles, I think. And uh, it might come off as something, I don't know, anti-Zionist, but that would be the easy way to interpret that. Staines, of course, is annoying in some sense, um, and especially when it's combined with theology. However, stained glass is the purest thing you can think of. So, uh, and I wasn't, I wasn't aiming at something negative. I was just uh, trying to say that there is an infrastructure here, a cultural, political, theological infrastructure of this thing we call Zionism. It animated the entire Zionist project from uh, its grammar to its culture and eventually to its politics and uh, territorial expansionism. So uh, many uh, people who deal with, many scholars who deal with political theologies always use this term uh, in a very holistic manner. And when you look at culture, when you listen to music, read literature, modern Hebrew poetry, um, plays, even translations of, of, uh, of Shakespeare or, or Nietzsche in Hebrew, then you realize the extent uh, uh, of this theological network and the way it permeated everything. Uh, in this national territorial culture, but when it comes to when it comes to culture, it's not holistic. We have residues and traces and stains, um, and stains for me uh, are like echoes in sound. They leave lots of traces, lots of evidence, lots of networks to be traced, lots of associations. Uh, Bruno Latour uh, once termed that a sociology, which uh, means sociology of associations. So, so stains for me is like uh, clues or traces or residues through which I can uh, build those networks and trace agents and mediators, be they human or non-human, through which again I can reconstruct uh, the discourse and and series of meanings. Uh, when I look, when, when I listen to music and then look at archival material. Um, so we have theological, which is this theological infrastructure of Zionism on the one hand. And on the other hand, we have stains because we are only left with uh, fragments to deal with. And sometimes they're very uh, intrusive. Sometimes they would, uh, they would be like a stain. They would be, they would be displaced. Sometimes it would be less conspicuous and they would uh, if if you're if you notice them then you might end up uh, discovering you know unexplored uh, territories and meaning now the last words of your title the Zionist project uh, the Zionist project is the Jewish national project and uh, the relationship between art music and modern nationalism has been found in many, many countries, really quite a, a wide range in the late 19th and early 20th century. You find it in the United States, the Soviet Union, Denmark, countries whose nationalism is quite different from one another. Is there a common dynamic to the relationship between music and nationalism? Well, there is. If you think about, um, if you think about any society whose national project or sense of nationalism, national awareness, except, especially when you have, uh, when it moves towards 
statehood, then there are some earmarks and, and characteristics that are associated with, the, with nationalism. We're a bit different uh, because we had to relocate in order to materialize our national project. Uh, and so when Jews wanted to be part of, of the Zionist project, they had to relocate from wherever they lived, Europe, Asia, uh, Africa, uh, America. And because they came from so many locations and had to grapple with the sense of nationalism, they had some uh, previous models they were drawing on, very consciously, by the way. And when it comes to music, uh, the entire um, repertoire of 19th century European art music and composers, especially from the peripheries, who were trying to display the peripheral masks, be it um, Czechoslovakia or Hungary, um, in certain cases, Italy and France, um, they... Um, it was very, it was uh, it was very powerful, uh, and a model for those who got their basic musical training in uh, European academies and at European universities. So uh, they came out with those templates and wanted to apply them to what was taking place in in British Palestine at the time. Why do you think that until fairly recently, musicology and sociology, both disciplines, uh, have largely ignored the role of music in nation building and nationalism? Um, because it's a different, it's a different kind of language. It's it's a pre-symbolic language. Uh, it's unsurprising to see that when sociologists, for example, talk about popular music, they usually talk about the lyrics rather than the music itself. Uh, and to to dig into first of all, you have to know how to read music, and that's that's like knowing another language with its code and histories and so forth, idioms, registers. Um, but then you need to look at a score and decipher its own histories. Um, again, idioms, textures, templates of various kinds that um, that are being employed in the text. So um, it's, uh, it's, really, it's really uncommon for, I would say, sociologists or an historian to, uh, to have the ability the, to deal with music. That's why you know, we are like art historians. Musicologists are like art historians in, in many ways, only that we deal with the art history of the invisible. But this invisible uh, is written in many formats. It could be the score itself, the manuscripts that lead to it, uh, sketchbooks of various kinds, but also primary sources in, in every language you can think of that are part of the network that eventually lead to this um, uh, to the final product, to this, to this music. Um, so it was very easy for a sociologist or historian to talk about certain titles or certain uh, buzzwords like Havanagila or Hora dances in the Yeshuv, in the Jewish community of Palestine, but beyond that, to talk about musical earmarks and signifiers and the way and the way they were uh, uh, distorted or paraphrased or tweaked in any kind, that that requires uh, a bit of uh, specific knowledge in musical semiotics, say, or things like that. And when you're mentioning uh, Havanagila or those kind of folk music, 
uh, br brings up the issue of um, Israel's diverse ethnic society. Um, how, how did it tell us about how that diversity enriched and created challenges for its serious composers? Let's start with your last two words, serious composers. Um, I just read this morning uh, uh, some reviews on Gershwin music, Gershwin's music in the 30s and 40s, and uh, his music was uh, perceived as some sort of a misogynist, uh, uh, as a mixed racial formula of some sort, where uh, he was doing something a bit Negroid, that's I'm quoting, of course, uh, and Jewish, and it was not really serious. So this whole height. Uh, aspect or hierarchy is a bit of a problem because when you start with serious music, uh, you think that okay, we are at the top of a we are at a, at a at a high rung and we're not going to uh, bow down and collect some uh, interesting ethnographic imports from the various non-European communities that would enrich our our culture. It was like that. I mean, I'm not trying to correct you. I'm trying to say that. This is one of the major problems that we had, a, by and large, an Eastern European cultural elite that um, that came up with this ideal model of the new Jew, the Hebrew, and this and this mold uh, was tailored according to the way this Eastern European cultural and political elite understood that by Western paradigms, and they wanted everyone to fit into that, regardless of their background. Um, so on the one hand, if we think about the early 20th century and the ethnographic fieldwork of, of Abraham Tzvi Edelson, the, the, uh, the Jewish music scholar, he has written a 10-volume thesaurus of the uh, various, and, uh, various different Jewish communities living back then in Ottoman Palestine. And the collection itself is marvelous, and the, and the research is is an eye opening. Uh, and you wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't have so much knowledge about this period and, and about the um, the way oral Jewish music traditions uh, uh, had evolved. But then, when when Westernness becomes the the criteria for writing music with art music composers, with those who graduated in music academies and earned their bachelor's or graduate degrees and started writing sonatas and symphonies and maybe even operas. For them, uh, this, was very, this was very foreign. And the only model they knew is the way European composers, mainly from the peripheries of Europe, domesticated native or, 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 uh, or folk or liturgical music because they wanted to, to fit it to those Eurocentric Western paradigms. And so... Um, Ethnographically speaking, the scene was extremely rich. What gets to the uh, what gets to composer what what come what enters composers' canvases uh, is in in many, at first at least it is very limited because they wanted to be part of the of the discourse and they wanted to be relevant domestically. So um, let's take um, a simple let's say Yemenite tune that was available already in the late 19th century and surely in the early 20th century. Now, this entire scene of, of art music uh, emerges and, and 
and undergoes institutionalization in the 30s when we have a critical mass of composers, musicians, uh, musicologists, uh, and audiences coming in, uh, in highly unprecedented, uh, highly unusual and unprecedented numbers from Central and, and Western Europe, of course, following the rise of Nazism. Um, and when they start writing, there are the, the scene, the, uh, uh, the various uh, Jewish communities uh, are enormously rich, but most of them are foreign to these composers, many of which didn't even know Hebrew. Uh, uh, the majority of which were secular bourgeois uh, Jews who knew very little about Jewish liturgy. So it was almost obvious that they would treat this music as something um, that um, was uh, almost an ornament, an external ornament uh, in their own music without changing the parameters and the paradigms and the idioms through which they uh, express themselves or through which they learned how to express themselves. Um, so at first, uh, uh, in the 30s and 40s, we get many uh, compositions that sound like they're from the 19th century. They're, they are, um, they're very conservative, very traditional in, in the European sense, almost out of sync with what, what was happening in the interwar period in Europe itself, because they knew, uh, they, knew they were familiar with this model uh, through the concert hall and through their own uh, education um, and wanted to duplicate that. And so we, we might get, we might hear uh, uh, folk songs and, and references to liturgical music and, and various uh, citations of, let's say, Yemenite Jewish tune or Bukharian um, uh, dance, but it was, it was tamed to fit to the bigger uh, Western mall that project, through which it was projected. And it came, so it came with a price. And, and yet, in those uh, very traditional 18th, 19th, and earlier uh, European music, Western classical or art music, uh, the th religious themes, biblical themes, are quite prominent. So making the transition to the theological stains would have seemed quite natural to those composers. Yes, thematically speaking, it was more. It was easier for for them to set uh, prophetic text from Isaiah or Ezekiel uh, to music because they felt more comfortably uh, in doing something that had international validity or at least European validity and especially domestic validity. Because if a composer like Paul Ben Chaim, who arrived. Uh, in British Palestine uh, from Munich in 1933 uh, set Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones. This was, of course, an allegory for the revival of Israel, not biblical Israel, but modern Israel. And it was part and parcel of, of actualization of biblical texts in, uh, uh, in Palestine and later in Israel. Uh, and the piece I'm talking about is the vision of a prophet, uh, uh, a cantata for orchestra, and uh, and uh, and uh, uh, and tenor um, and a choir from 1958, 
this was uh, this was really uh, a common denominator that made it easy for them to write uh, music. And I don't know if to identify with Zionism because very few composers actually were were Zionists. They came to Palestine or they emigrated to Palestine because uh, for lack of a better option, actually, because um, very few could get to the U.S. Uh, in those years. Only composers with international reputation like Arnold Schoenberg, for example. Um, but for them, it was very easy. And unsurprisingly, if you, if you read their letters, most of them perceived their immigration as temporary. They were hoping to go back to Europe. So this was like uh, when they set biblical text to music, they knew that they are doing something that would have validity outside of Israel. It would serve a national function uh, within the country. And it was uh, a, a compromise they negotiated with Zionism with which they never really identified. Hmm. Interesting. <clears throat> One of many of life's ironies. Uh, recent decades have seen the renewed interest among secular Israelis in reclaiming their ancient heritage by studying biblical and Talmudic texts. Uh, and, uh, at the same time, there's also been a resurgence of the music of poetry and prayer, the piyutim, uh, that had been traditional among Mizrahi Jews, those who were uh, expelled or fled from Arab and North African countries. Uh, how are these movements reflected in Israel's art music? Um Whatever happened in the, or whatever uh, happens in the 90s and, uh, and has been happening uh, in, in more popular circles, people who study Piyutim or maybe even Arab music, because you cannot really differentiate the Arab from the Jew if you want to study Syrian Jewish Salmadi, for example. Um, you know, I, telling you this, I, I, I recall uh, Rabbi Ovadi Yosef once said that uh, he reinterpreted. Uh, the the famous verse from Psalm 137. It says, um, uh, by the streams of Babylon and so forth, but it says, which usually meant that we hung our, our, um, our violins um, on Aravim, it means a certain tree, right? But then he says, no, Al-Aravim means Arabs. We hunger culture, we put it amidst Arab culture. It was a beautiful interpretation because you realize that the space or the way music uh, uh, disseminates is regardless of ethnic origins, political borders, uh, and and um, any any predisposition we might have in mind in order to separate, uh, to separate uh, communities. So I was telling you earlier that the paradigms are very Eurocentric when people try to project Zionist symbols in music. But concomitantly with that, there were composers who, who were drawn to this music and realized that there was a certain clash in domesticating or taming these musics when they get to, to, uh, uh, to a, a symphonic or, or uh, a symphonic format or any, or any genre that might that might misrepresent those uh, musics, and so it started really uh, uh, really early already in the fifties, 
and I'm sure there are some precedents in the 40s, but already in the 50s, we see uh, uh, dozens of example, examples uh, wherein composers are either transcribing or taking transcriptions of uh, um, Jewish musical traditions, non-European Jewish musical traditions, I should say, uh, and trying to listen or to work with their properties. That is, they're trying to work with uh, their melodic properties, harmonic properties, textural properties, and they 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 are seeking ways to, they sought ways to uh, somehow uh, uh, have those properties expressed in the music without objectifying this so-called oriental object, with this so-called oriental import. And that was the beginning of, of, this, of this mutual change uh, when, when uh, European templates were suddenly bent. Uh, and they, there was a, a serious semiotic negotiation between uh, the ethnographic import and what was supposed to uh, contain it. And once those two sides of the equation starting to change, music had become uh, less extrovert in, in the way it signified otherness or nationalism or Jews for that matter. It became less national because, uh, you know, if you end up a symphonic movement with, uh, with a hora, the, the, the mere rhythmic signifiers of a hora were something uh, uh, were something every listener uh, in in Palestine or Israel could easily decipher and decode. Whereas if you if you uh, embed the texture of Yemenite Jewish music, this is something that uh, is like a code for uh, is, is an undecipherable code for many listeners, but for the composer, it's something he can. Uh, is something that for him would be a true synthesis uh, of this location, of his place in this society, where he starts to listen to, to something that would enter his canvas only on the condition that the paradigms that would absorb it would be attentive enough to uh, and flexible enough to rewrite this entire thing. And, and so it started very early, in, in already in the 50s, when you'd think that this is the, the uh, apex of Zionism. Finally, finally, the third Jewish commonwealth is, uh, is founded, and we would hear nothing but uh, 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 formulations praising and, and, uh, and duplicating the national allegory in its greatest success. But, but in reality, uh, the fiscal uh, situation was, uh, uh, was one of the most, uh, I would say, Unstable. This country has ever uh, experienced. They were um, uh, there were um, waves of immigration uh, coming from Europe and North Africa and the Near East, which the country couldn't handle. Um, and and one of the most surprising things, and I wasn't the first to write about that, is that the Hebrew itself, the choice of Hebrew among poets and authors, was not was not um, um, was not an ideological choice anymore, but a def but but the default, and so the greatest success of Hebrew culture, uh, this the, uh, its greatest success was also its greatest failure, and there was a sense of disillusionment among many writers and poets and composers, and and one of the um, symptoms for that 
immediate symptoms was when they turned to Jewish musical traditions and started to uh, listen to its properties, uh, refusing to cite it and, and, and situate it as something exotic, different, other, exilic, diasporic. They didn't want that anymore. They wanted to write music that would be attentive to the space they're, they're now living in. That was too long an answer, wasn't it? No, it was a great answer because it <laughs> combined the, the wish for authenticity with the composer's need to express something that the audience is prepared to hear. Uh, and you also mentioned something practical about the uh, the economic hard times in the 1950s and fiscal issues. We we let's take a little detour into uh, pragmatics uh, because we can't ignore the role of funding for the arts. Any any arts. How is art music funded in Israel, and how is the balance between? aesthetic and political financial considerations maintained? Hmm. Where do you want me to start from? The 50s or nowadays? <laughs> start from nowadays and okay. put in a few nuggets. <laughs> it's ve- nowadays, it's very, I mean, there's a lot of red tape involved in getting allocations. Uh, we haven't had a budget in this country for two and a half years, so it's much more complicated if you want to speak about the here and now. But usually it involves a lot of red tape. Uh, orchestras uh, usually play the European conservative canon, much more conservative than you would find, than, than any equivalent orchestra you'd find in Berlin or Oslo, Paris, and Amsterdam. Um, maybe it's, it's this uh, sense of... Uh, Apolog- maybe this apologetics we we carry with us because ever since the uh, Israel Palestine or- the Israeli Palestine Orchestra was founded later to be renamed as the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra, uh, its founder Huberman wanted to to um, to have the West outside of the West. So um, there is a deep sense of apologetics involved in in playing Beethoven and Mozart and Bach and Mendelssohn. Forget about the fact that he's Jewish uh, and Brahms and and company. Um, so now the uh, the music department at the Ministry of Culture would ask you to uh, allocate certain um, a part of your repertoire to uh, Israeli to, to compositions written by Israeli composers, and that includes those who arrived here when Israel was not yet a state. Um, and if you do that, you get, uh, your support is bigger, you get bonuses. So there is a, there is a whole system of giving you, uh, uh, of benefiting you if you follow this, uh, this course, there are some ensembles that are dedicated to, uh, that dedicate their work to contem- contemporary and modern music. And naturally they play more. Uh, contemporary compositions by Israeli composers, they also get uh, uh, bonus allocations of various sorts, but it's more of, uh, for them, it's more a matter of curating rather than working just to get the uh, the, uh, the country's support. Without that, needless to say, it's like a museum for contemporary art. This whole business would simply collapse. Um, but um, what happened... Uh, 50, 60, 70 years ago was very much different because of the same cultural and political Eastern European hegemony I was talking about earlier. 
they, for them, it was it was uh, extremely natural to support uh, orchestras, a chamber ensembles, uh, all kind of operatic endeavors that were popping up here and there, um, and also to encourage um, art music, regardless of almost regardless of style, whether it was very modern or whether it was conservative, it didn't really matter. Uh, composers were also uh, were also teaching at various universities and music academies, so they also had their financial backup uh, for uh, writing. There were, all, there were all kinds of awards uh, encouraging writing, uh, research to a certain extent, uh, supporting orchestras and ensembles, I said. Um, but uh, it, was, it was a given. I, I recall now that in the 50s, there was an, in, the, in 1950 actually, very early in the game, um, one of the uh, popular music composers who was also an ethnomusicologist, his name was Menashe Ravina, uh, published this article called Fear, uh, Fear of Exoticism in Our Music. And he actually feared uh, what he, 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 tried to, uh, he tried to look at the future and, and think what would happen if uh, the people who are now appreciative of this Western culture, we support uh, would become a minority. What would happen to our conservatories, to our orchestra? Um, and because he was, of course, he was uh, imagining, you know, lack of control, lack of control of, of this model that held Westerness as the, uh, the model to uh, draw from, draw on. Um, so um, with, between those two, uh, uh, points in time. Uh, what, what is happening right now is, which, as I said, involves a lot of red tape. Uh, and what was happening back then, uh, we have all kind of uh, new ensembles and new projects competing, competing for, um, competing for um, their hold of uh, historical narratives, uh, competing for. Um, um, this redefinition of, of Hebrew culture and later Jewish culture, or those who reverted completely from, from, from this notion of nationalism and are trying to um, write about, uh, are trying to, to write just contemporary music, just modern music without any national affiliations. And these competitions are always simultaneous and, and they are they're really intriguing to follow because right now uh, an orchestra from Beersheba would say, you want us to play music by Israeli composers? Not a problem. We'll do Piyutim. We'll play Piyutim, uh, rearranged for uh, a small ensemble. And you can't tell us that's not Israeli, but the original intent was for you to play Israeli art music, which is less accessible, which is less popular. People are less exposed to that. Okay. Um, so at the end of the day, the problem becomes a problem of curating because we don't want to have Beethoven on the one end and let's say Beethoven followed by a Mendelssohn and then a, an avant-garde composer by a 40-year-old Israeli uh, um, uh, guy who has nothing to do with Beethoven and, and Mendelssohn. Uh, and why is it a problem of curating? Because we have to create those corridors that would allow us to see certain pieces 
in time from the 18th to the 19th and the 20th and the 21st centuries and understand that, first of all, they are part of this domestic history, but then they're also part of a bigger picture. Uh, they're part, a part of, the, of modern Jewish culture to begin with and part of the history of, of Western music. And Western music has changed dramatically over the last century uh, because so many, so many non-Western uh, uh, elements infiltrated, infiltrated into those paradigms. The same way uh, I, I was talking about uh, in Israel in the 50s. Um, and because they, they changed it so, so dramatically, we have so many, so many stories to tell. And jumping from Beethoven to, to contemporary Israeli composers just leaves so many holes in the middle. When you talk and we talk about the influence of European <clears throat> music, uh, just talking about Europe's influence uh, on Israel, period, uh, it, the trauma of the Holocaust in both Jewish and Israeli psyche and culture can't be overstated. Um, how has the Holocaust itself influenced Israel's music? Well, at first it didn't. Uh, people, composers were very reluctant to talk about the Holocaust in any manner. Uh, so the earliest works we see are like private musical tombstones uh, written in the memory of uh, certain relatives, uh, of, of the composer's relatives. Um, Nothing, nothing too, uh, too formal in, in, let's say, nothing too formal in the sense that you would hear uh, a cantata or a symphony in the memory of Holocaust victims. We didn't, we didn't get that in, until the 80s. So this is, this is, by itself, this is a reflection of what was happening, this code of silence that... Uh, was in power at least until the Eichmann trial. After that, we see, again, small-scale works that are private and individual and may have been performed here and there, but its, uh, but, uh, it's appearance, its weight uh, uh, at the concert hall was very different. So no one talked about it. In 1985, um, composer Noam Sharif wrote a piece called The Revival of the Dead. And it was very much uh, uh, a duplication of the classic Zionist narrative from destruction to, uh, to, um, uh, from destruction to uh, redemption. And destruction was, of course, the Holocaust, and redemption was political redemption in the form of the state of Israel. This was, uh, this was a piece that... Um, was uh, was pretty much out of sync with the current discourse because by the time, what I want to say here is that it was parad a paradox that by the time composers were willing to publicize this national narrative leading from destruction to revival, the revival of the state of Israel, um, it was no longer relevant among neither poets nor authors who, uh, who tried to dissociate uh, the Holocaust from the way it was nationalized in Hebrew culture. And the most conspicuous evidence for that is David Grossman's novel, Sea Under Love, which came out in 1986. 
Uh, say a little more about that dissociation of what was your sentence to disso- dissociate the experience from well I, I can't I don't remember your exact words but it's an interesting concept I, I'd like uh, you to expand on it well uh, Zionism by and large what I want to say is that the disabled the way nationalism uh, the disabled the way the Holocaust was nationalized in Hebrew culture uh, why why is that because um, Zionism ha- had man had had always managed the, uh, uh, let me restart, Zionism managed Jewish history uh, by, by creating this linear narrative leading from uh, this short uh, political sovereignty during biblical times to the destruction of the temple, second temple, to exile, to uh, revival or redemption, which was political. So this was, uh, this was, this was the uh, uh, these were the basic ingredients of, of the national telos of the national narrative moving from uh, sovereignty that was lost and and now uh, revived and in the middle we had destruction leading to exile 18 centuries of exile and now returning to uh, political sovereignty which is why the most important ingredient in Hebrew culture was Hebrew it's, it was the only uh, it was the only relic to this biblical sovereignty. Um, so with a narrative like that, which made sense, the Holocaust was another example, um, another manifestation of, of, the, uh, uh, of the insecurities and the dangers embedded in, in a life outside of a national territory. This was the biggest pogrom in history. Uh, and, 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 and a proof for that, that Jews cannot live outside of their national territory. And Zionist rhetoric itself managed to shrink 18 centuries of exile into some sort of a nocturnal existence that was heading, again, it was, the story is very teleological, I was heading toward redemption. Um, but by doing so, they while managing this kind of narrative, which was again duplicated almost uh, uh, without without any doubts in, in Noam Sharif's work, uh, The Revival of the Dead, by doing this, uh, the, uh, Zionist uh, rhetoric ignored all those hundreds of thousands of symbiosis that uh, gave Jewish culture and Jewishness its own meaning because forget about those short periods in which we had uh, and still do uh, uh, have sovereignty. The middle is so big to ignore. Um, can you can you ignore all those uh, texts and 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 music and uh, and uh, uh, rabbinical responsa, rabbinic literature, uh, literature, philosophy, what have you? Can you ignore all that? Uh, in favor of shrinking it so it would lead to the next stage, which is redemption. That was that was impossible to do. So, um, what we what what's so striking in David Grossman's uh, "See Under Love," uh, which is probably one of his brilliant, uh, br- most brilliant uh, uh, novels, is that he consciously uh, dissociated the way Zionism uh, had 
nationalized the Holocaust because it harnessed the Holocaust to be part of its uh, of its own uh, 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 narrative of its own telos of destruction leading to redemption or revival. And it took officials here, I think, seven almost seventy years. And I remember when Rivlin said on on the Holocaust Memorial Day when he say. The state of Israel wasn't funded because of the Holocaust. That was so meaningful, because he, uh, because there were so many, uh, uh, there was so many infrastructure uh, 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 prepared uh, uh, on the ground decades before the Holocaust. Uh, uh, Zionism, the goal to return to Zion, is is part of the of is part of Jewish liturgy and Jewish theology, um, and so. Uh, what David Grossman does and, and what, comp- what other composer, composers were doing after him uh, was to, to think about the Holocaust either separately from Zionism or while realizing that, that the Holocaust cannot be, under the, cannot be discussed or portrayed in any manner under the auspices, uh, auspices of uh, uh, Zionism. Well, that is a, a full and important explanation. Uh, be, because the the Holocaust has been, of course, used by uh, both friends and uh, enemies of Zionism, um, and uh, dissociating it seems like the right thing to do. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Israel has also had to fight many wars to defend its existence. Uh, talk about the musical impact of any one of Israel's wars. Okay, uh, here I must say I I uh, I was very I was very I was very against uh, uh, doing that because um, I was very much against this notion of we have a war let's see let, let's examine its aftermath in music. Um, that's why that's what some of my colleagues and, and predecessors in the field uh, had been doing. And I, I objected to that uh, because it's like we're looking for representations to to uh, to justify the way we talk about cultural history and to justify those themes that people are talking about. And why is it a problem for me? Um, let's take those big watersheds: forty-eight, sixty-seven, seventy-three, eighty-two. Okay. You'd think that after every war, we would get uh, a piece that reflects. This war in in any kind of uh, uh, expression that would have direct relation to it. Let's say let's take 1948. The problem with this is that it becomes some sort of an optical illusion because uh, cultural history has a different dialectical rhythm. And if composers arrived in British Palestine in the 30s and 40s, they obviously imported with them various. Uh, um, modernist brands through which they were writing music. Now there's a war and they have to write if they wish to, not, not all of them did that, they have to somehow represent or, or represent it or reflect upon that and so forth. So at best the war can become a catalyst to write a piece but the, the way the piece is written uh, precedes this, this political event. In other words, I don't want to punctuate or subjugate my cultural history to political and military history. So 
and I'm going to say something uh, very alarming. 48 has no meaning in terms of culture. It's a catalyst. Neither 67 nor 82 or 73. Um, it's a catalyst at best because the tectonic shifts that are taking place uh, in, in the way composers write music, in their aesthetic decisions, are, are, are much more important, whereas the war is at the surface level and could be an excuse uh, or a catalyst to, to have it as a topic, but underneath, it would echo something that preceded this uh, war in, I don't know, decades. And that would be true for every country, not, yes. not particular to uh, Israel. Absolutely. <clears throat> Finally, Asaf, uh, what are the important trends in today's Israeli art music? Who are the composers to watch? Ah, uh, I haven't written about, written about them because they're really working here and now. First of all, it's super interesting to, uh, to watch the scene at the moment because you have composers writing music, uh, people who are in their 30s and are just writing their first opuses, and people in their 90s who are probably writing their last opuses. So the sheer simultaneity of composers uh, is such a... Um, uh, with, with, with those age differences uh, um, and, and all those in between, many of which got their training, their graduate training abroad. Um, it's so positively noisy and chaotic that we cannot taxonomize it or, or characterize it in just one sentence. Um, if there is a composer I would uh, uh, talk about, there are actually three. Uh, two women, one uh, one man, uh, and this is another positive aspect of that, that we have many more women uh, in the scene. Uh, we had very few in the 40s and 50s, actually. At one point, we, we only had one. Um, so uh, Betty Olivero uh, is one of them, born in 1954. Um, uh, she got her basic training at the uh, Tel Aviv Music Academy and after that, she left and studied in in uh, the USA and then in Italy, um, lived almost 20 years abroad. And what's unique about her is that she uh, she's she listens to the uh, to the space, not the political space, but to this space of the Mediterranean. And she might uh, employ music from Iraq to Morocco, Ladino songs and Yiddish. And she melts it all in this wonderful, um, uh, in, in amazing orchestrations and, and musical formulations that transcend our instinct to, uh, to uh, explain this music by means of representations or by means of identities. It's just too multivocal to, uh, and it resists those, those, uh, those signifiers. And it's lovely. Uh, the other person is uh, Chaya Chernovin, who doesn't live in Israel at the moment, but she also got her training at the Tel Aviv, uh, at Tel Aviv Music Academy. And she is the person who set David Grossman's See Under Love to music as an opera, but not any opera. It's a mute opera. Instead of having, she realized that the, the, the text itself uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of the novel was too dense to lend itself towards a dialogical uh, libretto. And instead, 
she decided to uh, have the music uh, as broken fragments of noise, probably the result of her attempt to uh, assemble a new language that would cope with the Holocaust, while the uh, singers on stage are actually mimes. It's a mute opera with no libretto and just broken phonemes uh, heard by four singers in the pit with the orchestra. So she's the second person. And the youngest one is probably Yair Klartag, uh, who, who, just, who was just announced as Siemens, uh, um, Siemens Award Laureate, um, a very prestigious prize in, in Germany. And he writes uh, contemporary avant-garde music where pitch is only uh, one of many, many options when you come to write music. So, so he embodies this uh, new, um, this, this perception where every sound has equal rights on, his, on the musical canvas. Wow, they all three sound remarkable. <laughs> Extraordinary musicians to watch. Uh, Asaf, it's been great talking with you. And before I let you go, tell us a bit about what you're working on now. Well, I'm actually working on, uh, you know, having realized that the territory uh, had been such a, a constituent part of Hebrew culture and having written two books on the topic, uh, I also realized, and that, that's what happens when you finish a book, you realize what you could have written, uh, uh, maybe in the next chapter, but I had to stop because I almost reached page 500. Uh, I realized that the territory is no, does, not, it does, uh, does no longer play uh, a part in, in what, we used, what we used to call Hebrew culture. And some of the constituent paradigms that condition the entire scene have been muted by composers. They, they are not, uh, they're not conditioning their work anymore. So I realized that uh, having separated culture from the territory, or, or when composers had done that, uh, and are currently doing that, when they write music, we might be, in a sense, in a state of afterness. So I'm writing a book that will probably be titled After Hebrew Culture. Well, wow, that sounds very interesting. Lots of good luck with that project. Thank you very much. And thank you, Asaf, for being on the show today. My pleasure. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. Bye-bye.